Hello, good morning ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine, here today to talk you through both of Shane Asini's poems which are set for GCSE. You'll probably study or know about or teach only one of them, but the context is basically the same, so rather than record the same episode twice but like dodgily bleep out or edit the name of the poem, I figured I'd do both at once. Apologies for this episode dropping a day late. Honestly, I had a cracking migraine this week and I tried to record yesterday to meet my um, my recording schedule and then I listened over the recording this morning and it wasn't actually in sentences. <laughs> It was just like random noises and bits of books, which I mean, some of you might ask you that's not much different from normal, but I was like, I'm not going to put out a shoddy product because my brain is full of migraine and codeine mixed together. So I figured I'd leave it for today, give us a little Seamus Heaney Saturday. Right, str 8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com. Find me on YouTube by searching up Straight Talking English. Find me on Amazon. If you search up the full context, you will see books one through four, which I have completed. Book five is so nearly ready to go. And book six is currently just the name of chapters, but it will happen. It will happen. We are on day 36 of lockdown, so I'm assuming it will happen before I finish lockdown maybe patreon slash straight talking english if you like what i do then for as little as a pound a month you can donate to the show to support me top tier subscribers get to commission an essay or an episode or whatever you like on whatever topic you like pretty good deal in my opinion right seamus heaney so bare bones headlines facts about the man He was born in 1939, he died in 2013. He was born in Derry in Northern Ireland and he died in Dublin. He had several children. He received in 1995 the Nobel Prize for Literature. Some people have said he is the most important Irish poem poet since Yeats. He has been called the greatest poet of our age. In 2013, The Independent said he was probably the best known poet in the world. He has taught at Oxford. He has received basically every prize that you can get uh, in the world of poetry. He is a big name in the world of poems and translating and Irish literature. The two poems that we've got are from his very first published collection, which was Diary of a Naturalist, which came out in 1966. And a lot of his work is based on his own life and his own experiences. This is sort of where it all comes from. What's awesome is that that makes it well easy for an enterprising context researcher like me to sort it all out, basically, since I don't have that much to find. Follower, we'll take that one first. Before we go into the dad, Mr. Patrick Haney, enjoy this reading from our voice actor this week, Nick. Follower by Seamus Heaney. My father worked with a horse plough, his shoulders glowed like a full sail strung between the shafts and the furrow, the horses strained at his clicking tongue. An expert, 
He would set the wing and fit the bright steel-pointed sock. The sod rolled over without breaking. At the head rig, with a single pluck of reins, the sweating team turned round and back into the land. His eye narrowed and angled at the ground, mapping the furrow exactly. I stumbled in his hobnailed wake, fell sometimes on the polished sod. Sometimes he rode me on his back, dipping and rising to his plod. I wanted to grow up and plough, to close one eye, stiffen my arm. All I ever did was follow in his broad shadow round the farm. I was a nuisance, tripping, falling, yapping always. But today it is my father who keeps stumbling behind me and will not go away. Alright, so the basics that we're getting there from that poem, right? He idolises his dad. His dad, like, puts up with him. But then there's a change, there's a split, and then the dad is following after him. Alright, for a long time, I thought the dad had died and he was a ghost, which I guess shows that I'm pretty morbid <laughs> more than anything else. But no, uh, Daddy Heaney was very much alive until 1986, so we can see it as a metaphor rather than like an actual splitting between this mortal coil and some celestial plane. Alright, let's get let's let's think about the dad and we could do this for a lot of interviews that he's done. From the Paris Review, Heaney revealed that my father was a creature of the archaic world, really. He would have been entirely at home in a Gaelic hill fort, his side of the family, and the houses I associate with his side of the family belong to a traditional rural island. Also, nowadays I am more and more conscious of him as somebody who was orphaned early on in life. His own father had died suddenly when he was quite young. His mother died of breast cancer, so he and his siblings were then fostered out and reared by aunts and uncles. My father grew up with three bachelor uncles, men who were in the cattle trade in a fairly substantial way, travelling back and forward to markets in the north of England, and it was from them that he learned the cattle trade. So the house where he spent his formative years was a place where there were no women, a place where the style was undemonstrative and stoical. All that affected him, and of course, it came to us through his presence and his personality. And the overwhelming thing you get out of all this discussion about his dad is that his dad doesn't talk much. He is not not a chatty fella. That's, this is like, okay, okay, cool, cool. Like, much as I would love the dad to have been interviewed because that would have made my life so much easier. Dad does not say a word. So there's a couple of really good books I would recommend to you if you were interested in researching Seamus Heaney. One of them is by a guy called Hugh Mulrooney and it's called The Night of Other Days. It's a biography of Heaney, but this guy was also like his bestie. So it says it's based on his own words, but like basically like he said it and his bestie wrote it down. This is like my gold mine of everything for the old Heaney. So let me give you Mulrooney's slightly less archaic summary of the old dad. Patrick was a cattle jobber in addition to his farming work. In 1950s Ireland, north and south, cattle were marketed on fair days. There was a fair day in Belagi. Okay, 
B-E-L-L-A-G-H-Y, you know I can't do pronouncing anything, on the first Monday of each month. In the early hours of the morning of a fair day, cattle were driven on foot from the hinterland into the town. Heaney recalls the streets would be crammed with cows and heifers and bullocks, the whole place loud and stinking with the smells of the beasts and their dung. His father Patrick, a cattle dealer, would negotiate either on his own behalf or that of a third party. He usually bought a few cattle for himself and would offer for sale cattle he had purchased at a previous fair. On occasion he worked for commission in the purchase or sale of cattle for a third party. There was much theatre at fairs, and Heaney was familiar with the milieu of fair hills and cattle pen, and knew men in the trade and enjoyed the banter and the bidding and the bargaining, slapping hands, throwing up their hands, walking away, pretending you were at your limit. It was terrific theatre, and I didn't feel out of it, but still, I didn't have an ambition to grow up and do it. This familial closeness comes across in Heaney's accounts of his first memories of his dad. One day his dad came home without his hat and went straight to bed. Heaney recalls that it's because he had nearly drowned after his horse had reared up and his cart had overturned on a river's bank. And Heaney said the strangest thing was seeing my father without his hat. There's a sense of awe about it and about him going to bed, a farmer going to bed in the afternoon, a world-shaking event. That's the eternal image for me. Some of those things are ready-made poetry. You don't touch them. As far as possible, you don't touch them. Let them happen. Don't interfere. But, okay, so as a little kid, they're getting on famously. You know, Dad's doing his ploughing. Little Seamus is just, like, running along, doing his thing. But what changed? What caused this split? And the split is because Seamus went to school. (laughs) He got a scholarship to a boarding school at 11. So, this, while obviously it's awesome if anyone goes to a grammar school, you've done your 11 plus, very, very good. I'm rubbish at non verbal reasoning, so I would probably do alright on the English bit and uh, <laughs> just ruin everything else. Oh, just before I go on, um, I will never know how I did on the 11 plus because I became a woman during. <laughs> <laughs> my attempt to do the 11 plus by which I mean I had my very first panic attack age 12 I thought I was dying my mum had to be called I was puking everywhere and as a result I have no idea whether I would have passed I like to think I would have but what's remarkable is that I survived that and also that Heaney was Catholic and he went to a boarding school in protestant northern ireland we're going to come back to this but he got this like really prestigious thing patrick heaney left school at 14 so by 11 he had already like outclassed his dad academically and like he'd moved away into this world of like books and thinking and stuff In an interview with The Telegraph, he was asked what his father would have made of all of this, like, had we been been able to speak to him. And Heaney said, I don't know. I think he regarded it as a mystery. I suspect it wouldn't have been his thing. I mean, he didn't devalue it. I think he's talking about education. He wasn't afraid of it or against it. He watched it happen as he did the oddity of me publishing a book and himself being in it. 
That must have been a curiosity. We didn't quite deal with that. We didn't even discuss it. No way of discussing it. And he was asked, was your father embarrassed by it? And Heaney said, no, I can't think of the word, but embarrassment isn't it. Embarrassment would be too laxative a word, not embarrassed. What would be the word? I think he ended up pleased, pleased I had defined something for myself. He knew everything about cattle, and that was what he defined for himself. I went with him to markets, fairs and so on, and saw he had an area of expertise. He could know the weight of a beast within a few pounds. So pleased. And proud at the end, yeah. But he wouldn't have gone so far as to proclaim it. He wouldn't go that far now. He tried to teach his dad about poetry, but... It wasn't really working. He said the other way round, if anything. I'd enjoy the masquerade that he'd never read a line. We are creatures of many capacities, and you could live on a thousand levels without dishonesty. I like it. I mean, I feel like it's such a poetic way of, of doing an interview. And Heaney, as someone who I've read a few interviews of, is kind of... He talks like a poet he talks like a poet and everything's a blooming metaphor and it's actually kind of a nightmare to make anything heads or tails of but even though many 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 people go to school and in fact like due to this opening up and this like sort of tenuous equality for catholics at this point in the 50s like hundreds of young people are doing this people are doing this now i mean i'm the first member of my family to get a degree I'm not the first one now. I'm not the only one now, but at the time I was the first one. And, like, it's not, not that crazy, really. It's just how time goes, isn't it? But the difference between someone who normally just, like, goes to school and Heaney is that he feels guilty. And this guilt, which he never opened up about, remained with him forever. Various experts have said things like, already in the earliest work of the young poet, his father had become an elegaic presence, a force for his own mourning of change. As a child, he had looked up to his father as a man possessed of magical skill and strength. The images and illusions are evidence of love and admiration, but also the product of separation, a disgrace, born of time and education, which the young man half regrets. So... I mean, he does feel guilty about leaving this really traditional way of life behind, but part of me is like, well, just get over it, Seamus. Like, what, you think you could be ploughing with the horse forever? Oh, well. But this is partly why I am not a Nobel-winning poet. <laughs> Whereas I feel like maybe I should be. Maybe I should be. I could join the ranks of Bob Dylan. All right, so at the time, uh, he is living with his mummy and daddy and like a million siblings. And they are living in this family home called Mossbaum. M-O-S-S-B-A-W-M. This is the family home, which is like in all of his poems. If we had to like any location that's like a house or the countryside, it's Mossbaum. That's just like the code. In his Nobel acceptance speech, he actually said... I was the eldest child of an ever-growing family in rural County Derry. We crowded together in the three rooms of a traditional thatched farmstead and lived a kind of den life, which was more or less emotionally and intellectually proofed against the outside world. 
It was an intimate, physical, creaturely existence, in which the night sounds of the horse in the stable beyond one bedroom door mingles with the sound of adult conversation from the kitchen in the other. Like, the stooks and stacks of the uh, the corn and stuff, that is totally real. That's what they had at Mossbaum. Another book which I recommend is a collection of the interviews which have been done with Haney. It's called Stepping Stones, and it's by a guy called Dennis O'Driscoll. Um, not that much of it's relevant, to be honest. Like, 50% of it is like, and then I was an old man at Harvard. But he gives us a tour of Mossbaum. The bit in the poem where he turns around and goes, you know what I mean? Like, speaking directly to the reader. That's Heaney's voice. And he does say very colloquial things like, yeah, and you know. And I kind of like it. So let me give you the Heaney guided tour of Mossbaum. He says we're talking about a one-story, longish, lowish, thatched and whitewashed house about 30 yards in from the main road, parallel to the road. Someone riding past on a bike would have seen it through a thorn hedge and a screen of young alder trees growing on a bank just behind the hedge. Beyond the alders was what we called the front garden, a mini field of sorts, and between the front garden and the house was a boxwood hedge. The lane, or loaning, went straight in from the road and fermented. Fermented? Oh my god, that was really Freudian. I'm not talking about booze. I'm recording this at quarter past eleven in the morning. And formed one end of that front garden. So you walk down the lane with beech trees on either side of you, turned left onto the front street. Then if you stood facing the front door, you had on your right the front window of the kitchen or living room. Farther along on your right was the front window or the upper bedroom. On your left, you had the front window of the lower bedroom and beyond that, the stable door, since the stable was under the roof in the main dwelling house. It is a proper farm with like traveling sales people he says it sounded very idyllic but it was a small ordinary nose to the grindstoney place a subsistence level life so there you go if you want to google mossball you know the location but what is the storm oh yeah obviously it could be a little storm (laughs) could just be a storm we we don't have to uh we don't have to pussyfoot around it but the storm could also be childhood trauma because like every single poem that i have done someone dies content warning it is the death of a child so skip over the next few bits if that is something that may ruin your day they had to move away from Mossbaum because in 1953 uh his three and a half year old brother christopher died as a result of a road accident 20 yards like six meters away from Mossbaum. Heaney wasn't there when it happened but he said that he had a clear picture of it in his mind. Christopher had been taken hand in hand by his older brother Hugh to post a letter on the Belfast bus on the Belfast bus. Spotting his other brothers on the opposite side of the road Christopher had run straight into the path of an oncoming car. Hugh had carried the bleeding unconscious child down the short lane Margaret, his mother, hearing the commotion as she hung washing on the line, lay the bleeding toddler in his cot in the kitchen. He died that evening in the Mid-Ulster Hospital. Heaney wasn't there because he was away at boarding school. So, 
is the thing that's coming the thing we can't really prepare for the thing that's going to attack us the death of his brother is it the fact that well understandably to be honest the fact that they up and moved away from what's presented as being this like garden of eden kind of house into like quite a normal house is that the storm that's coming up or ba, 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 is it the troubles so if you've heard my paddy's day special in which the wonderful holly zone did us a little lecture on irish history you will know all about what the troubles are but if you don't then i will give you a, a little brief recap which will probably not even be half as good as holly's so but like i said death of a naturalist his first collection came out in 66 by the end of 68 the troubles would be well on their way well troubling and that's the period that's the term that we give to this 30 year period of violence in northern ireland which ended with the good friday agreement on one hand you have the ira the irish republican army and who want ireland to be one united country nothing no barriers between north and south just one big old ireland and on the other hand you have people that are pro ulster or pro union and they're the kind of folk who want us to be the uk with northern ireland included in it there is no way that heaney could not have been aware of these tendencies there is no way he couldn't have been so when he went to uni he was in the catholic minority studying in dublin he don't lies he was in the catholic minority studying studying in belfast so he was living this kind of like minority existence he did always feel like there were barriers he also was working as a teacher in quite um a deprived area of belfast and that meant that he was also um seeing a lot of the sectarian violence that may well have been part of what we would now consider to be the troubles so the reason i say he must have known about this is because he was from derry that was the bit where a lot of the violence of the troubles started so he grew up in this area full of tension in his interviews he said there was no sectarian talk or prejudice at home though there was still an indignation at the political status quo we knew and were given to know that ulster wasn't meant for us that the british connection was meant to displace us no need to go into the list of complaints all over again the discrimination in housing and in professions such as medicine the paramilitary nature of the ruc and b special constabulary like the um the british armed forces the main thing was that you shared what used to be called an anti-petitionist stance. Now, truth to your feelings, acceptable or not, is one of the things that's not only required in poetry, it's what drives you to poetry. So my early poems are true to my spot. Immaculate conceptions, if you want. However, that would say, yeah, yeah he's thinking about the troubles, he's thinking about a storm brewing. In some interviews, he says, yes, 
In some interviews, he says, no, I am completely apolitical. In the ones where he denies any link between politics and his poetry, are the ones where he says he always does it just for the rhyme. He's obsessed with the rhymes and internal rhymes. So, is it? Is it not? Let's go. Let's go. Let's make this definitive, all right? Because we're going to argue. And, and I mean, this seems reasonable. What he says in his Nobel lecture is probably him nailing his flag to the mast, metaphorically, right? So, tell me what you think of this bad boy. The external reality and inner dynamics of happenings in Northern Ireland between 1968 and 1974 were symptomatic of change. Violent change, admittedly, but change nevertheless. And for the minority living there, change had been long overdue. It should have come early, as a result of the ferment of protest on the streets in the late 60s. But that was not to be, and the eggs of danger which had always incubated got hatched out very quickly. Oh, all right, all right, you know I said that he loves metaphors. I can't believe I've just said the eggs of danger on my own podcast. All right, all right, all right, all right. Come on, come on, Catherine. <laughs> Don't giggle at a speech again. While the Christian moralist in oneself was impelled to, be, impelled to deplore the atrocious nature of the IRA's campaign of bombings and killings, and the mere Irish in oneself was appalled by the ruthlessness of the British Army on occasions like Bloody Sunday in Derry in 72, the minority citizen in oneself, the one who had grown up conscious that his group was distrusted and discriminated against in all kinds of official and unofficial ways, the citizen's perception was at one with the poetic truth of the situation in recognising that if life in Northern Ireland were ever really to flourish, change had to take place. But that citizen's perception was also at one with the truth in recognising that the very brutality of the means by which the IRA were pursuing change was destructive of the trust upon which new possibilities would have to be based. Nevertheless, until the British government caved into the strong arm tactics of the Ulster loyalist workers after the Sunningdale Conference in 74, a well-disposed mind could still hope to make sense of the circumstances, to balance what was promising with what was destructive, and do what Yates had tried to do a half a century before, namely to hold a single thought, reality and justice. However, after 74, for the 20 long years between then and the ceasefires of August 94, such a hope proved impossible. The violence from below was then productive of nothing but a retaliatory violence from above. The dream of justice became subsumed into the callousness of reality, and people settled into a quarter century of life, waste and spirit. Oh, life, waste, and spirit, waste. Oh, he's got dashes, dashes instead of hyphens. Ooh. He's a poet, he's allowed to do that. Of hardening attitudes and narrowing possibilities that were the natural result of political solidarity, traumatic suffering, and sheer emotional self-protectedness. So there you go. Once again, I feel like I can't really offer you any conclusions. I think Storm on the Island is about the troubles. I have always thought it was about the troubles, to be honest. Uh, even though he says it's just about rhyming. Now, mate, there's no way that you can't have known about this. I've been thinking about it, and you also sometimes admit it. Dude, get over it. The same as, like, if I was going to write a poem, and, like I said, day 36 of lockdown, climbing the walls a little bit, it's probably going to be somewhat influenced by coronavirus, and someone who inevitably, in a meta moment, 
writes their own context books about my context books will probably say that coronavirus was a big influence on her blah 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 we know it it's all good thank you very much for listening to Mashamus Heaney Double Bill thank you for bearing with me because this is a late drop thank you very much in advance for donating to my Patreon for a pound a month you can support the show I am str8 talking str8 talk english on twitter straighttalkenglish.com find the full context on amazon that is my books find me on youtube by checking out straight talking english and i will return next week to talk about that dirty dog and terrible father cecil day lewis (laughs) 